welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. Hello, hello, Modern Anarchist community. On today's episode, we are joined by the polyamorous and kinky non-binary trans therapist, Clark Hazel, who shares their vulnerable story of resilience. Together, we talk about never getting the lesbian sex talk, the paradoxical logic of the patriarchy, and processing through shame. Clark, this is a story of strength and resilience. I am in awe of the ways that you have stood tall in your truth and in your authentic expression against multiple barriers and levels of oppression. Your strength truly is remarkable. I hope you see that. And thank you for all the vulnerability that you brought into the space about the shame that still comes up for you. I just, I am so glad that you normalize that in this conversation that it doesn't just end when we get out and into a safer place. There's still so much work that we do internally to process these things. And I just, I appreciate your vulnerability of where you're at. And yeah, just want to sing songs of praise of your strength. And you are a light. You're an example to so many other people that have gone through various forms of spiritual abuse. And so thank you, truly thank you. And to all the listeners out there, there is a lot of discussion about spiritual abuse and LGBTQIA oppression. So please, please take care of yourself and do what you need to do with your boundaries about tuning in and seeking the support that you need. Mm, yeah, this, this episode really hit home for me and I'm sure it will for a lot of you. Y'all, tune in. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So do you have any questions about the podcast? Anything for me before we get into it? Yeah, I was listening to a few folks and then also Jason, uh, Jason's recording. Also, uh, one of them was so interesting. Uh, the person that was sharing their experience about being raised in Mormonism. Ooh, and I, yeah, yeah, Raina. Yes, <laughs> I have a lot of similarities with yeah. uh, Raina. I want to hear. It was a little too surreal. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So were you raised Mormon? Yes, I, I was. Ooh. Yes. Raised Mormon, raised as a Mormon girl, which is no fun. Lots of uh, policing, a lot of shaming, um, yeah. especially around sex, masturbation, mm-hmm. how we dress, a lot of control. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that's a bit much. Um, definitely has lasting impacts. I've been out of the church for several years now. But I still notice it uh, coming up for me, even in my work with mm. clients and just how I move about the, the world. So I'm actively working on on learning that internalized shame. Yeah. Yeah. 
Is that something that you might feel comfortable talking about here? Something that you would be willing to talk about in this space? Oh, totally. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because there's, there's a lot there and I know it might be a sensitive topic too as well because it's, yeah, I, I, I can resonate with you in that sense of like it, it still comes up in pieces even when you feel like you've processed so much of it and then it still creeps in. You're like, God, where the hell is that coming from? Absolutely. Yeah. It sticks with us. I mean, if you yes. think about it for how many years you're in uh, a religion and then you're out of that, you still have 20-something years that you have been impacted by and mm-hmm. you're not going to swift through it in two to three years it's going to take some time and it'll probably be long lasting and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, continuous mm-hmm. process yeah i was um raised in a little farm town in california in a very small uh mormon community and a lot of pressure to attend church as a young person my grandma and aunt uh actually started one of the uh, mormon churches in winters So they like broke ground and did a lot of fundraising. And so it's pretty important to my family, um, family history and also attending church. I also wasn't raised um, in like the typical Mormon family as well. My mom was like the breadwinner. My dad made less money, had less education than my mom. And so my mom wore the pants in the family, which was not okay in the Mormon church. Yeah. Feeling uh, a lot of shame as a kid and being shamed for not having like the typical mom that was going with me to like different Mormon girl functions that we would have or um, sitting with us at church. I felt a stigma. I felt out of place and not necessarily accepted. It was very challenging. I was also like the good girl Mm. in my family. My sibling ended up leaving the church about 15 or 16 when I was about 12 and so I was the only kid that was actively going to church with my dad and uh my grandma would attend church with us so I would sit with my grandma but um so I was kind of like well no one else is going my mom's not going my sibling isn't going so you're kind of like voted in to that space and like all the expectations were then like placed yes. on me to carry yes. it on yes to be that good girl as you mm-hmm. said could you say more and you feel like what what do you feel like was expected of you at that time to be obedient, basically, mm. to follow all the rules, to attend all the functions. I had to be an active participant in leadership positions, um, going to Bible study during high school, temple trips, going to girls camp. I even had positions where I was the uh, youth girls camp president for all the girls. And so I was actually part of like a year long planning for the um, week of girls camp. So I just had a lot of expectations and yeah, I was very overwhelming at times mm. and um, a lot of coercion and like physical intimidation to go to church from family members, a lot of manipulation from like my mom for me to go to church and it didn't really feel like I had a choice in the matter. And so, oh. yeah, I don't think I fully believed in the church, but I was so brainwashed and pressured into going that I was like, I'm just going to do the thing right. and try to make it through. Right. So it sounds like at the time you you were in it, but it didn't seem like it fully resonated with you. You were feeling that sort of pressure that this is what your family system wants of you, or I guess wants isn't even the right word, is forcing out of you, right? But to you, it didn't seem like it resonated fully, even at that young age. No. And I inadvertently, as uh, a baby 
baby Clark, I was very mm-hmm. sick as an infant. I had um, several emergency surgeries and I was in the ICU for several weeks and my parents were not sure if I was going to make it. Mm-hmm. And I was in wow. such critical condition that, you know, my family were constantly by my side because they weren't sure if I was going to live um, and doing, you know, blood drives and um, someone with me like around the clock. And it actually brought my dad back to church, which cursed baby self <laughs> that oh, oh. my, you know, near death experience brought my dad closer to the religion and my parents back closer into the faith. My um, mom is a convert to the Mormon church and my dad was born and raised. He would attend church just because it was expected of him. And then when I came along, I was very ill. Then he kind of recommitted to God. If I were to live, that he would go back to church and be involved and yada, yada, yada. And then good thing, bad thing that I made it, you know, but my dad went back to church and then he was really hardcore about it. And then very hard on us to attend with him. Right. Yeah. And then how hard is it to sit with that, that knowing that my birth is what caused them to go back to the thing that is forcing this whole rigid structure on me that I don't align with. Yeah. It's very odd to have something so traumatic recounted that you don't remember. And also you being like the reason that brings people in closer to a religion Mm. that you're like, ugh, I hate that. Mm. Hate that for me. Hate that for my family. Yeah, exactly. Darn those intestines, you know? Yeah, I born in the church. I got baptized at eight. I even remember my baptism day where, you know, my mom knelt down next to me eye to eye, was letting me know that it was my choice to, to join the Mormon church and that, you know, mom and dad are part of the church and it's really important to our family, but it was really my choice. And I remember thinking like, I, is it? Cause like yeah. you took me to get my baptism pictures yeah. and like, you're really invested in this and party afterwards. <laughs> yeah. How does one at eight actually have a voice and choice in joining this I was so afraid of getting baptized because I'm like well I can't make any mistakes after this like I am washed clean and I remember just like having so many panic attacks as a little one because I'm like I was just dreading that baptism because I'm like I can't I'm going to hell like all these things are going to start accumulating on my God's just gonna be this like sitting tallying up all my mm. sins. I'm like, I yeah. can't get baptized again. I'd have to yeet myself out of the church and then get rebaptized to be able to like wipe those sins clean. I just remember freaking out every time Ugh. I would do something. I would feel so much anxiety of like, oh, that's another one. There goes another one. Wow, wow. That's At so eight years old, right? Eight years old, you're grappling with the reality of am I gonna be sent to hell for these decisions I'm making? At eight. Oh, yeah. I feel like this is something that's not talked about enough, right? How many kids, I think they just kind of like, oh, kids get it. It's a story. Like, they get it, right? But I don't think parents understand the amount of psychological pressure that we're placing on children when we tell them these stories Mm -hmm. and what it can actually do to us at that time. Because I felt very similar in that same way with that sort of pressure where every single thought you're like, is this sin? Is this wrong? Is this going to be the thing that sends me to hell? Am I truly saved? And that sort of stress cycle is just... Absolutely. Ooh, I think there needs to be more space about these sorts of things. And also the signaling, like in the home, you know, having pictures of us, you know, my parents got married in the temple and they got sealed to us, which is like a very special blessing. You know, your kids get sealed for you 
or time in all eternity, right? Right. And so if I didn't make the decision of getting baptized, I wouldn't be with my family for eternity. Like what kid is like, you know what? I'm going to fuck this up and I'm just not going to get baptized and like see you whenever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not real. Yeah, exactly. it's not going to happen. I'm not going to break my family apart for eternity. Like who's going to do that? No. Exactly. And so then where's the autonomy in that choice? Precisely. So I got baptized, went forward into young women's, so uh, at age 12, and then, gosh, there's so much church. Church was, like, all week, every day. I felt like I was constantly just so many eyes on me all the time, and we lived in a very small town, and, like, if my, you know, my sister was, like, very much a rebel, out as queer, and not attending church, and we would get phone calls all the time from fellow Mormons of like, "Do you know that your daughter is doing this with this person at this location?" And it was actually my job as a kid to like run home before my parents got home and delete all the voicemails that like church members were leaving about my sibling, so that wow. there wouldn't be contention or you know physical fights in my home. And it was very intense to be that like you know peacekeeper in the home so I felt so scared to make any kind of ripple in in my family life that I just assimilated and it's been really hard to also unlearn that because you know having the uh, being empowered to consent to things right I feel like that was like stomped out of me absolutely like so hard I'm constantly trying to check in with myself to, to mm. ask like what do I actually want to say in this moment is it a yes what is my yes yeah. I never felt empowered to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. We were literally so brainwashed. You know, every meeting we would have these different like sayings and chants and kind of recommitting to just obeying. Yes. Obeying our husbands, obeying the patriarchy, obeying my father, not being empowered to have the priesthood. I actually in um, college started wearing pants to church and I got actively heckled. My dad told me that I was going to hell, that I was such a disgrace to God, that I should be ashamed of myself, that I wasn't a man, and I didn't deserve, you know, God's love in those moments of wearing pants. Like, it was just so much oppression and discrimination for for women in the church and trans people, non-binary folks. It's just astounding how harmful Mm -hmm. religions can be, especially when it's weaponized against folks. Patriarchy sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, amen to that, 100%. That is and what I will say. <laughs> yes, and I think this is where it gets hard, right? Like this respect for people's religions and also, and I, I, yeah, exactly. I fall into the same camp too where I'm like, I don't want to talk poorly about people's religions, but there is also this really big acknowledgement that there are patriarchal structures present in some of these religions that are inherently harmful. And I think that's where we need to talk and focus our discourse, right? It's not necessarily like attacking the whole church, but recognizing that there's problematic views within it that need to be reformed. And there's space mm-hmm. to have these conversations. And so, yeah, it breaks my heart that at eight, you're going through the world trying to figure out how to make decisions and understand, yeah, what your yes is, right? Mm-hmm. And you're in a structure that's telling you, you don't actually have a choice at all. And if you don't listen to what we do, the whole community is watching you and going to come down and tell your parents and strike on you more. So yeah, where is the ability to learn the natural development of what it means to be a child of making decisions? Absolutely. Like I said, I would go to different church functions. I was heavily involved. I would go to, you know, do baptisms for the dead at the temple. Yeah, Um, sure. Family history was super important. 
and my dad had a temple recommend. And so I would go through, you know, interviews with my bishop to be deemed worthy to go in. And of course, that super problematic, disgusting, almost on the verge of like solicitation of a minor in my view. Really? It's just a completely inappropriate setup having an adult man with a young child asking about masturbation habits. In what ways do you touch yourself? Do you have unclean thoughts? You know, what what is the limit? Do you like are you yeah. do you allow other people to touch you? And you know, when is that okay? Like in any context to ask no. a small child about masturbation or any kind of inquiry just around it's body. Not. It's it's never. not. No, absolutely not. It is not appropriate at all to be asking those questions, especially we have to acknowledge the power dynamics here too. This is not just a normal conversation. This is no. someone who has a power and authority within the church. And so it's not even like you can freely consent to disclose that information if you wanted to. Right. It is not the dynamic here. We have the implications exactly of what you talked about earlier, that if you don't comply with this system, you're not going to be with your family for all of eternity and you're going to fuck that up. Well, and also if I came clean and said, yes, of course I masturbate. Like what child does not touch right. themselves? Like, hello, right. developmental age, that's totally normal. And that was complete, like, you don't touch yourself. So of course I'm not going to wrap myself out. And if I did, I wouldn't be able to go on these youth trips. So here's mm. the only kid not going with the whole group to the temple. I wonder why, probably because you're a little say? slutty slut. You're Ugh. a little slut. And that's yeah. exactly how kids would talk. They're like, this person's not doing well. Uh, I think that they're unclean or they're like a skank because they're not going with us. And like my my sibling was, you know, labeled all of these horrific things. I would even be passing going to the bathroom and people would be talking about my sibling and it's just horrible ways. So many judgments having, you know, slut shaming, sex shaming. It was just terrible to hear that. And so I'm like, of course, I'm not going to out myself. Even, you know, uh, in sacrament, I would look over to, you know, my uh, family member who was struggling with maintaining being in the church and would actively have to skip over the sacrament. So here's everybody with nothing else to do but watch each other partake in the sacrament, recommitting each week to those commitments in the temple and to God and to basically being obedient. And if you actually see someone pass the sacrament and not take it, you know something is up. Mm -hmm. They're doing something wrong. They, it could be sexual reasons. It could be that they're losing faith in the church. And so you're actively outing. And also that coercion from, you know, the bishop of saying, if you want to be right with the Lord and you want to be entered back into the fold, you have to go through counseling with me. And these are the ways that you have to repent. And that is also bringing unwanted attention and shame to you. Yes, a hundred percent that you shouldn't have to deal with at any point in your life, let alone early childhood. Precisely. Mm. So, of course, I lied my pants off yeah. to be able to go into the temple with all my buddies and not be outed. Yeah, and, of course, when yourself. I would go into the temple, um, I would be oh, full no, of nerves. Yeah. I'd be shaking. Mm. I'd be so afraid. I'm, and I would actually feel so bad for the people that wouldn't be entered into the kingdom of God because I knew that I was dirty for masturbating and that these souls were not getting that acceptance into the church that's oh, what yes. i would be sitting with the dead souls that you were being baptized for yes and i'm yeah, i my, my dad would be like you need to you know do the temple work and you need to get baptized for these family members and i would actively say no because i knew in my heart i'm like 
I've been touching myself. I'm not even supposed to be in the, oh. in the space. Oh. And now my family members, my ancestors cannot get being like brought into the church because I lied and I yeah. I felt horrible. Wow. And I mean, we all knew that we masturbated, that we were doing these um, you know, unclean things in the eyes of the church, but of course we're not gonna say anything because like we said, it's a small town. Mm-hmm. Shame I've sought for my sister and other family members and it's like, is that really worth it? No, it's not safe. Do I wanna have that conversation with my parents of like, why aren't you going to the temple with everybody? Of course not. No. Absolutely ridiculous the pressure that the Mormon church and family members put on their kids. Mm-hmm. And how much it screws up our understanding as like girls, as like other folks, genders in general, like being able to say no. Like we're in that process of like is no or saying this is not okay. It's okay for these older white men to ask me such intrusive questions, but strangers can't. Like, where's that line? You know? Mm. It's so not contradictive. okay. It's yeah. not okay. Just setting folks up for failure. Yeah. And also for, you know, young kids not to be able to say no in very dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. So ridiculous. So I definitely attended church. I even, you know, went through kind of like, you know, Eagle Scout route, but for girls. I was in leadership positions throughout high school, attended all of the baptisms for the dead. Um, I also got uh, different, like, blessings uh so if you're 16 or you're going to go on your mission you usually get another blessing that kind of is foreseeing your future in the church and you're not supposed to share it with people and it was very heavy on like you know i'm gonna marry a man and i'm gonna have you know kids and bring children and that's my duty as a woman is to bring forth a bunch of kiddos and it was like said that i would have multiple kids and i kind of scoffed at that at the time and i was like uh, that's not happening <laughs> yeah no it's pretty ridiculous Wow. And I think people who aren't in the Mormon church might not understand like that blessing. It's like it's foreseeing your future to a degree, right? It's telling you what the prophets, your, you know, the leaders in your community have heard from God about your future. So it's not just a soft little blessing. It is a this is where you're going. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, that means you've fallen off the path of God. Exactly. Yeah. Patriarchal blessing. Awful name, obviously. They actually call it that? <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's like, does anyone understand? Anybody saying this? Hello. <laughs> All along, great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was like, oh, it'll be contingent on your obedience and, you know, staying within the church. And, you know, also it definitely highlighted like being obedient to my husband, being obedient to the leaders and my, it was just absolutely like i look at it occasionally when i'm like you know what today was a good day what if i just spiced it up and just added some trauma like what if i just looked at this little bit of trauma in my life let's it's just shake things up you know yeah. things are a little too balanced and then i'll look at my patriarchal <laughs> blessing and i'll go off the handles just for yes. fun you know yes just yes a little bit of trauma yes, here and there. yes. hey but, it provides yeah. contrast sometimes dude <laughs> you know my life is so good i could have been a homemaker i could have had a ton of little kids running around me yep. positive gay with you know probably also a gay husband and we're just like living this life you know i thank so god worthy. every day that you don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i still continued after high school into the church we um ended up moving from like the little farm town to a bigger city I started going to community college. I also attended um, the Institute of Religion. So I was actively working on uh, going to BYU. 
BYU, Idaho. It's going to be, I had a lot of family in Idaho, a lot of potato farmers, farmers, and I'm like, oh, I got family. I guess I'll go to BYU. I started taking institute classes, getting prepped for a mission course. Yep. <laughs> I decided to take foreign language. I started taking ASL classes. Then I got into an interpreting program and we were required to go to deaf events. And I um, had been attending the Singles Award. And I don't know if you know what a Singles Award is. <laughs> it's horrific. <laughs> but you what, should explain, yeah. <laughs> what a setup is mm-hmm. uh, definitely focused on you finding a man, getting married as quick as you can. So if you didn't go, you know, the BYU route straight away, don't worry because you have a second chance to get married. If that route wasn't uh, your first go, then here's a second second option. Mm-hmm. So I attended Singles Ward and they would have date nights. They would have like service projects and, you know, uh, single adult dances, very centered on getting cozy and getting hitched. There are actually parody movies about Mormons. And if you ever have the want or you're extremely bored out of your mind, watch the Singles Ward. It is very on point. They joke about it, but it's a little too real. And it very much goes into the details. And it's just quite funny. It's quite funny. So Singles Ward was part of my life for two years. I started to realize, I'm like, I think I'm gay. I am gay. I had had a high school teacher literally give me It Gets Better, the book. (laughs) And I'm like, is this for someone? And she's like, no, that's for you. And I'm like... What is the context around this gift? Yeah, I don't get it. Please. <laughs> She's like, oh, it just might be helpful in your journey. And I was like, I don't really understand. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Here I am with a bun and like two sports bras, you know, very sporty gay wearing my, you know, jerseys to school. Gay? Who's gay here? Lady. Hashtag offended. Yeah. That planted a seed. Uh, I actually had wow. another professor uh, when I was still going to singles war, going to institute religion. And she, <laughs> it was so funny, the note that she gave me. She handed off this list of like resources, like LGBT centers in the area, different like queer clubs on campus. And was like, oh, part of my you know job as a professor is to provide like resources for students. Just like passed it off. I'm like, what? So were you out? Oh, um, I didn't feel okay. I was gay still. I'm still in this farming, you know, uh, I'm still trying to figure things out. My mom had always questioned yeah. my sexual orientation. I had put it off side, never, you know, took an interest in dating, especially into college. I just knew I was sporty. I didn't super have plenty for men. Mm-hmm. Go figure, uh, just in general. But then it started sinking in, like something might be a little different about me, and people are giving me all these clues. And um, you know, my sibling would always be like, "You're such a lesbian." And they're like, "Oh, hateful! Why? Why would you say such?" A thing? Yeah, not a yeah. So rude. <laughs> so wow. Point. Um, and then I actually went to the LGBT center. Uh, met some really great friends. I still have friends. Uh, it's been like over ten years. Since I attended my yeah first like queer young adult hangout, and then I also went on study abroad and started going to gay clubs in London. When I uh, I went for about a month, and I was like, okay, I'm definitely gay. I'm absolutely gay. And so I came home. My uh, parents were still putting pressure on me to attend the singles ward and to date men. And my dad would just be so over the top, so extra, and be like, we'd be in the car together. And he's like, isn't that guy cute? Right, cute. And I'm like, Dad, are you trying to tell me that you're gay? Like, you're finding this <laughs> yes, yes. And he's like, you need to start dating. 
use basically like your your clock is ticking and you didn't go to BYU yet. You still are in this space. Like, let's let's get a pop in. And so finally, I was in the car and we're on our way home and he was do, just doing the most, doing the yeah. absolute most. And I was like, Dad, I'm gay. I don't find men attractive. And I'm stuck in this car with this man. And I wish I had a queer elder to be like, uh, coming out one one don't be stuck in a moving uh, oh. mode of transportation yeah. when coming out because my dad absolutely lost it screaming really? at me really? you're oh not gay God. you're gonna mess up your life you know it's gonna be such a sad and pathetic life you're gonna be you know basically like you know uh depressed and he used like one of our family friends as an example of like isn't her life so sad she's a lesbian you know, she doesn't have any friends and she's not a part of her, you know, own family. She doesn't have a family and very much emphasizing like the hetero, you know, relationship and family structure of like she doesn't have a man to provide. Like she's very much on her own. And, you know, I am very close to this person. You know, she would take me on these like camping trips. Very she's gay cool. looking back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like she's probably in her kind of Subaru. <laughs> yeah. Driving me out with another lesbian and like her gay, you know, nephew. And we would just go gay camping gay amazing still was like oh i'm not gay even with that but you know just using these key gay folks and i have gay cousins and my dad just highlighting how sad their lives are and just like i would be a miserable human um taking taking that path you know of the gays choosing to be gay um it was so uncomfortable he like even kept the doors locked as we were like in the parking yeah we parked and was still actively screaming and I was like I just need to get out of here you know nothing I said was de-escalating and I was just like yeah. I gotta go wow yeah similarly I was reading some you know other resources that I had come across and my mom came in my room and saw that I was you know I don't know if it was the actually it gets better book but my mom you know started screaming at me like do you have something you need to tell me you know what are you reading this for just very aggro about it and, you know, I was like, oh, no, it was just, like, given to me by a friend and trying to, um, you know, brush it off and just, like, storming out of my room. So, you know, conversations were had. Also, you know, I was, like, confronted by my parents of, like, you know, after coming out. I think it was several months later, my parents took me to a Chili's, you know, very classy, D-Classe, mm-hmm. sat me down. <laughs> uh-huh. And they're like, so you're a lesbian. And we think it's because of past trauma. And I lost my shit, right? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. How, how old were you when that conversation at Chili's happened? I was 19. You know, I wasn't wow. a young kid. I was, you know. Still a kid. Still a young very, adult. Yep. Very upset. And then I, even in that moment, was like, so you think, so I'm a lesbian and you think spending 18 months with lesbian, a, a woman companion just us two is your answer to solving me being gay and like getting into the church and like, you know, getting back into into the norm and like assimilating. So you think me being in a studio apartment with another woman for 18 months is going to fix me being a lesbian? I'm like, do you see how that that worked out in your mind? Did you think that through? Like I yeah. literally started like laughing at my parents for this idea as, as if that's going to cure my gayness. 
that was their plan. Like, yeah, okay, we're gonna, gonna fix your me. aunt, right? Like, let's put you with your aunt for a year. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. Another yeah. woman for 18 months alone, and that's my only companion. Yeah, I can't yeah, reach out. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's quite funny. I mean, they're helping you be gay at this point. So, exactly. I mean, I was like, yes, I would love a gay vacation for 18 months where I could forget about feel my problems. Safe. Yep. Yeah. Little racist. Yep. Come on, mm-hmm. parents. And I actually left and started walking home, and they had to drive and, like, follow me, and then I got back in the car, and then they took me home. But that was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, what were you feeling at that time? Yeah, A lot of shame. So much anger. The fact that they would, you know, use this old trope that, you know, just because you experienced trauma, that, of course, that's going to make you gay. Ugh. I mean, so much pressure on me to educate my parents about queerness, so much for me to hold, you know, all these, you know, having good intentions versus impact. The impact was catastrophic. Like, I still feel hurt and, you know, have that in in me, just like in my body now. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. It's just a part of me. It's like, yes. wow. You know, if I ever were to share this with a, you know, a cis person that I've been, you know, abused as a child, like, okay, they're going to be like, aha, that's why you're, that's why you're gay. Oh, so validating of your authentic attraction. Exactly. It's horrible. Yes. So I came out not great experience, continued to go to Mm. queer uh, groups, you know, further uh, developing my vocabulary around gender identity and expression and queerness and just seeing other queer folks and how how they're living. And I'm still attending church. And then uh, I started needing to get more experience acquiring ASL. And so I switched. I went from singles ward and this was like taken really hard by my dad that I switched from going to singles ward, which, you know, obviously his plan is for me to get married off ASAP. Getting in the way of that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely did. He was not happy about it. I actually had to lie and sneak and go to a different church. And so I tried to hide that for a long time. But when I brought it down, I'm like, oh, it's still in the pursuit of going to BYU. I need these credits for getting transferred over so then i started warming up to it (laughs) Mm. so mormon churches are fascinating so they'll have different meetings for different like cultures for different identities and the uh, i went to like it's called like a deaf branch so there's different branches within wards and stakes it's very interesting their structures but anywho so it was primarily deaf folks i was um, interpreting Sunday uh, church lessons and uh, interpreting, you know, the main uh, sacrament meeting is what it's called. And I started to feel more comfortable and confident and accepted and loved. And I think that was probably like one of the first times that my, you know, queerness was actually discussed. It was named. Um, and that was really like radical for me. Yeah, I course. had just felt so excluded and just conditioned and oppressed and pushed into church. And I actually was excited to go to church to, because I, I felt acceptance and of course, who I was yeah. and I was felt, I felt valued and cared for. Mm. It was really different experience. And I really loved um, going to church. Also, you know, on the flip side, I started to realize like how oppressive the church was towards deaf folks, accessibility, you know, a lot of uh, hearing members would talk about, you know, it's so distracting. It was just so frustrating. And, you know, as a hearing person, I have hearing privilege and able to be in those spaces and advocate and also interpret, you know, conversations. It was just a lot of clashing, wow. a lot of oppression and, you know, pushing deaf culture aside. And they ended up, you know, uh, merging the two wards. So hearing services and uh, deaf folks would be intermingling which was just absolutely chaotic a lot of deaf folks felt oppressed understandably and accurate 
and just having to deal with, you know, not supportive members. So I would actively be, you know, discriminated against or like, you know, called out for my short hair and in the space I felt comfortable starting to wear bow ties. Like I had a deaf member buy me a bow tie for the very first time. And I was like on cloud nine. That was probably one of the most exciting accessories to this Mm. day. I think I've ever gotten as a gift and um I had to hide it I couldn't leave Mm. my house wearing it I had to wait and then actually like change in my car before walking into like church services um because like I said I my dad would start screaming at me for you know Mm. wearing pants um and I got to that point where you know uh other members uh deaf members were like you should wear pants what if you what if you wore like the equivalent of like the priesthood holders and I was like, you're right. Like, what's the worst that could happen? So I, I bought a white uh, button-down shirt. I wore my bow tie and my black slacks. And um, I was even, you know, treated as like a priesthood member, basically, by the deaf community. And I was interpreting the priesthood blessing over the sacrament. And the hearing congregants lost their shit about it. <laughs> Absolutely lost it. There were, I guess there were meetings about it as well, which I wasn't included in, um, Mm. with like, uh, the, like some deaf priesthood holders were like, why can't Clark, you know, bless the sacrament? We need it interpreted. They're doing great. And they're like, it's, this person's a woman. Women cannot, you know, give blessings. They can't sit, you know, in like the priesthood, you know, holder area, which, you know, the men will line up and then they grab the bread and water. And I wasn't allowed in that space. And it was just like, brought me back into my shell again I was coming mm-hmm. out I was feeling confident in my decisions and my gender expression and finally feeling this you know love basically and I don't yeah. think I've ever wow. felt loved in the church I felt it was very love was very much dependent on my obedience was I doing all the things and here here they were encouraging me to express myself and just accept me and love me for who I was and I don't even think I've ever felt that from Jesus, <laughs> you know, mm. I've never felt that from God. And I felt that through community, the deaf community. And that was just that literally has changed my life Yeah, and to be stepped back into the closet, basically, and oppressed. And, you know, here comes the patriarchy again. Yeah. Bastards. Wow. <laughs> you just start to f- get that first breath of fresh air when you start to come out and feel that love and it just gets hammered out of you hard. Absolutely. It was Uh, really devastating. And then, you know, I started uh, feeling more confident leaving my house in my bow tie and my shirt and then just being heckled by my dad every Sunday and told I was a disgrace. And, you know, do I feel, am I happy with my decisions? Am I happy with, you know, disgracing God? And I mean, it would be about other things as well, like drinking coffee. He told my mom and I that I was going to hell for drinking coffee. You know, if I would leave on Sunday, he would literally chase me out of the house, trying to get me back into the, my my house. Wow. He, would, he was very intense about being obedient and going to church and doing all the things. So it was very scary leaving my house on Sundays. And I also met um, a lesbian at church, a hearing person, and she actually started backtracking. So she was living with her partner for many years and her father last wishes was like, I want you to go back to church. I want you to be right with the Lord. I want you to marry a man. You have to stop living your authentic life. And she did. And it was really disturbing to hear her story. You know, she was actively pursuing men and she was still living with her partner, 
but, you know, started sleeping in a separate room. And then she basically, you know, went back in the closet and started going to singles wards. And like, this was applauded by other members. It was even announced, you know, uh, that folks were dating. And so having that pressure and I remember recounting this to one of my mentors and they're like you gotta leave you cannot be talking to this person you can't be around her like this is so harmful I'm hearing so much that you didn't feel safe and even within the church and within your family structure your father the way that he would use such force to keep you within the structure is is heartbreaking to me it was very upsetting um Mm. Yeah, it was it was really frightening to hear this woman recount her experience and just seeing my future. Like, if I go to BYU, if I'm doing these things, uh, God, yeah, I I can't keep going down this path. And I, it's really been helpful to have mentors pop up in my life and you know guide me because I think you know without that outward you know voice and other queer folks telling me like, you have a different path. This is not the path. Like you actually have a choice and not, and actually believing that and like embodying that feeling of like, I have a choice. And, you know, I would start pushing back. My mom would be like, you know, if you're going to live with us, these are the agreements. You go to church, you go to the singles ward. And I'm like, when did we have this contract? Like I'm an adult. This is no longer what I want to do. Right. And it was very much, you know, pushed back on by a lot of my family. And it was just unbearable. It became like a point of being unbearable. And so I started to decide, like, what do I need to do to get out? And I know my cousin was trying to get out of the church and she's like, it's impossible mm. to leave. It's absolutely impossible to leave. You have to find a lawyer at some point because you have to contest it. You have to write your bishop and ask go up to the chain of command, literally to like the prophet. Right. So to be able to leave and get your name taken off the rolls because they can still count you and your records will travel like whenever we have moved any address, even when I moved from my uh, my hometown to Sacramento, the missionaries would find us and my records would get transferred to the stake that we're at. It was so fucking creepy to just be walking around and here comes the missionaries. Are you such and such? Mm-hmm. I'm like, do you have a tracker in my phone? Like. Is there a satellite following me? Like, how the hell did you find me? Yes. It's so creepy. Yes, that's exactly what Raina talked about, how they were following her too. And so, yeah, it's like, how do we not consider this a form of stalking? Like, you've left the church and they are finding you in places. It is absolutely frightening. I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want to be reengaged. I don't want them to continue to count me as a member of the church. Yeah, no. Like, fuck that. So I started formally a plan. I'm like, what do I need to do? I, I'm not being authentic. The church is becoming more and more oppressive. I'm getting badgered by members. I'm getting called out. My family is actively, it feels dangerous. I just, that's what I can name. It it felt very dangerous and I felt very unsafe Mm. a lot of the times. I had a point where I'm like, I am queer. I'm, I'm building up my outside community. It was very scary to think that you know, leaving the church could mean I would never be with my family for eternity. And even though, you know, I'm starting to realize like that it's all bullshit, it's probably all made up, but I've been so indoctrinated, literally, you know, told that my, you know, birth and my, me being alive literally brought my family closer together and back into the church. So me leaving the church, you know, extremely devastating. And, you know, I had lost my grandma uh, a few years earlier. I think it was like one or two years before I decided to leave the church. And she actually moved in at the time where I was 
very ill. My mom was uh, working night shift as a nurse. My dad worked at local nut factory um, in the warehouse. And so I was very ill and I needed around the clock care. Mm-hmm. And my grandma moved in. So she was my best friend, my confidant. She was someone that would literally be my caretaker. And we developed such a close relationship and she had passed. And I knew like if I were to leave the church, I might risk never seeing my grandma again. And that was, I mean, it yeah. still gets me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing how much you love her that you might not get to see her again. It was such a hard decision. Mm -hmm. And I still grapple with, you know, what's going to happen in the end. Where will I go? Obviously, I still believe it's complete bullshit and that's not the end. But I still don't know if I'll be able to see my grandma again. And in that time, it was probably one of the hardest things and kept me anchored in the churches knowing that, like, I could see my grandma again, and that would be, that's my best friend, my second mom. And that best friend is worth going through all of this lack of safety. That That is such a hard thing to grapple with, a place where you don't feel safe to be yourself, but also such deep love for someone. And to have to weigh that, yeah. no one should have to ever face that sort of dilemma. It, it was, it yeah, it definitely took me to my knees um, and, yeah, prolonged my me leaving the church um and i just kept building up my queer community and support and listening to my mentors i was like okay i think i think i'm ready i decided i'm like not going to BYU. i want to move to portland i'm gonna go to portland state and i regrouped and i decided i'm like i don't want to live a really sad life and you know not the sad life that my dad told me i was gonna live as a lesbian but i'm like i don't want to live uh, a sad celibate life because you know, my dad at one point was like, for you to continue living in this house and like being here, you need to tell your bishop, you need to get counsel from your bishop um, and tell him that, you know, what you told me that you're gay. And I did go to my bishop and I was like, hey, it's me. <laughs> I'm gay. And he's like, all right, like, have you acted on it? And I'm like, what does even acting on it mean, dude? Mm-hmm. Great yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, Oh, well, and I did ask him, and he's like, uh, holding hands, you know, are you following the laws of chastity? Are you, you know, having unclean thoughts? And I'm like, of course I'm having unclean thoughts about women. Yeah. Come on, right. sir. Come yes. on. Yes. Come off it, dude. I uh, didn't mention that. Nope. No unclean thoughts here. No holding hands. No smooching. Nope. And up until this point, I had been completely celibate. I had not had sex. I had not uh, drank. I've never smoked. I had coffee, which already I'm like, well, I'm going to hell for that. So whatevs. Um, Whatever. Might as well do it all. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, yep, I have not acted on it. He's like, well, as long as you don't act on it. And I'm like, well, what does my life look like in the church if I were to not act on it? And he's like, you would be celibate. You can't have a relationship. You would have to be like a member and not have any relationships. You would just be, you know, a party of one for your whole life. And I was like, wow, when you put it that way, that's inspiring. Can't wait for mm. that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Horrific. That is like subsisting. That is not a life. Right. I was just like flabbergasted. I'm like, are you real? Like, I literally had to do a double take at him. I'm like, this guy is fucking serious. Yeah. And I started researching you know, what are my options in this church? If I stay, if I go, like, if I, you know, act on my unclean thoughts, what are the repercussions of that? Right. Where you need am I going to know? Exactly. Yeah, what's going to happen? 
And I was looking and I, there had been priesthood holders who uh, are gay and they served in positions of power. Of course, it's men. They never talk about lesbian women or non-binary or trans folks. But you, he, there was a gentleman that served as second counselor to like the bishop in Utah, out gay, not partnered, completely celibate. Of course, you know, this is, of course, most likely incorrect. But, you know, portrayed that he was celibate and he was living his best life and he was in a position of power. Look at that. So inclusive. Wow. Go no. you. Go yeah, patriarchy. Yeah. Yuck. And Ugh. yeah, that chilled me to the bone. I was like, yeah, fuck that. Yep. Um, and uh, <laughs> also, I was freaked out. I'm like, I don't know how to have sex. How, how does one have lesbian sex? How does one yeah. have oral um, and be protected, right? Mm-hmm. I never had these talks. Of course not. No, not in the Mormon church. Nope. I never got the lesbian sex talk from my parent. And like the only sex talk that I had, and like, thank God, I do hold a lot of respect for my mom because, you know, she is very much like, you can date men. I do want you to get married, but like you need to get your bachelor's first. Like you, that is a requirement and like really cautioned me against like, it was, it was a double-edged sword. She wanted me to date men. She didn't want me to be gay, but she also wanted me to be able to support myself and be an independent woman. Right. Sure. Cause she was. Yes. And, uh, you know, she did give me the sex talk. It was definitely cis hetero sex talk. Um, but she also emphasized something that I had never heard from my church leaders. Cause like church leaders, like in my young women's classes, we would have the sex talk and like, you know, anti, you know, sex positive, basically, uh, don't touch yourself, yada, yada, yada. If you do, you're like a used Kleenex to your husband. Like that was like the comparison I very much vividly yep. recall. Yeah. Like, Great. Yep. That's lovely. And my mom was like, you know, my mom taught me that like sex was to please your husband and like, you should just take it. And my mom literally said absolutely you should not and she that was the first time i think i've ever heard that in my life that sex could be for pleasure it does not have to be you know uh to procreate um you could say no and Mm -hmm. you know that was super radical my grandma you know grew up in the south and you know she was definitely abused and didn't know that she had those options and like for my mom to provide that uh empowerment that i could say no that i could have sex for other reasons than being a baby making machine that was just like radical to me and like really it still sticks with me like i still remember we're in her bathroom you know pouring over menstrual products or like you know products Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. her having that conversation with me and, and giving me that idea that and empowerment that i have a choice and that yeah just really is powerful um yeah that you have the power in sexual relationships yeah that is a novel thing for a lot of (laughs) religious connotations and especially if your grandma didn't have that i mean that's a big step for your mom and so i'm so glad that she was able to give you that that's super big yes it really really hit me i started uh pursuing leaving the church so i did a bunch of research i was very intentional and like i don't know if i could get a lawyer and even at the time wait list for lawyers that knew how to navigate the church system. It was very expensive. I'm yeah, a 19 year old. College. Exactly. Where am I going to nope. get this? Um, and I was like, you know what? I am going to, I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to have sex with a woman. And I got on dating apps. I talked to, you know, my fellow, uh, elder queer. And I was like, how do I have sex with a woman? Yes. <laughs> and I was like, how- the secrets. Yes. 
And she's like, oh, you should probably use a barrier. And, like, you know, gave me the sex talk. And I was like, so, like, saran wrap? Like, I put that over my bowl. <laughs> I, a cover? <laughs> she's like, no, there's dental dams. <laughs> saran wrap? I've never heard that. But, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I have no idea. It is absolute. Yeah, I'm feeling, like, shame coming up. Like, I, I no, you just you don't know, No, but you didn't know any right? better. It's no, great. I love I it. No, I didn't. <laughs> I know. It's hilarious thinking back of, like, what was I thinking? Might yeah. as well have been foil. Like, just yeah, put foil up in my bowl and my clit. Like, the internet wasn't there what were you gonna do yeah oh my gosh it was just ridiculous so yeah i uh went to i think it was a student health center and i ran in so quick i grabbed a bunch of condoms and i dropped a bunch and i just ran out of there it was like a flash i was like no one saw, my no one saw that yes <laughs> left proof that i was there but um i got my dental dams and i got condoms because i was like oh she uh taught me that i could like make a dental dam out of a condom nice wild look at yeah, that versatile i got on tinder i matched with someone and i was so scared and i was like i've never had sex before <laughs> i don't know what to do but i really want to have that? sex with a woman and she was great she was so so sweet i said that i, I said the thing yes such a so fucking vulnerable. dork yeah so embarrassing but um oh. i was like i I want to do the thing. And yeah. she's like, great. And I'm like, would you like anything? You know, would you like to make out? Can can I give you also oral? And she's like, no, I am so excited that you're like choosing me to like be your, uh, your first partner in this adventure. And I was like, great. And I was like, so what's next? And she's like, well, we can set up a time to like have sex. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, great. Yeah. And I was very intentional of picking the time and the place. So my parents were flying out to go see my sibling because at the time my sibling lived in a different state. And then my uncle who lived with us at the time was also in travel. So both folks were up in the air, no chance of anyone coming home and discovering my rendezvous with this lovely woman. Yes. Same. And I, yep, I went through with the thing. I was shaking. I think I had two panic attacks in the morning <laughs> of meeting with this human. Um, <clears throat> it was probably one of the best sexual experiences I still today have had in my life. It was amazing. Like the kindness, the care, the intentionality that she had active consent throughout the entire sex experience, which I feel like is very different than like mm -hmm. the typical cis hetero experience oh, that yeah. I hear recounted in sessions with clients, mm -hmm. with my friends. It was, it was absolutely, it was the best. I Ugh. felt cared for. I felt seen, um, listened to. It was, it was just radical. It was, mm. it was amazing. Super awkward. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so awkward. And how beautiful though, right? Like you've gone through this whole journey of in your teenage years, finding out that you felt like you might be gay and having to go through all of this fighting and obstacle and barrier barriers that people try to put up in your way to stop you from this moment. And then to have that moment in it to be so, so amazing. I'm sure it was such a deep form of validation for all of the fighting that you had to do to be free. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, I felt very empowered to make the choice and, you know, thinking on the flip side of like, I I don't know if I would have that ability and that voice and, you know, um, hetero experience with a husband. Like, I'm sure if my husband wanted sex, I'd be like, okay, I guess we're having sex. Yep. It might not, not be comfortable for me. It might be very scary. And in this moment, I'm like, I am empowered. I can make the decision. I want to have sex. I'm going to be intentional about it. And it was like I said, one of the best experiences of my life. 
very kind person and mm. I had sex. I sat with it. It was very affirming. I was like, I'm definitely gay. Yes. Definitely gay. Fuck yes. I'm like, would I have an orgasm with a man like this? Absolutely not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I started to sit with all those feelings coming back of like, I fucked up. Mm, I fucked yeah, up. Shame I had, coming up. I had sex. It's very uh, unholy sex. And now, like, I've done the thing. I can't really go back. And that's something that was like, I was very intentional about. I'm like, that is like the last straw. I don't think I could come back from that. And I don't think I want to. Yeah. And I was at that point where I'm almost done. I'm with my interpreting program. I have all the credits. I'm ready to transfer to Portland State and leave. I'm leaving my home. Uh, I'm leaving the church. I I just need to get out. And I don't think I could get out another way. It's too complicated. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to keep this guilt keeping me in in line and, like, submissive, basically. And I, you know, had an ally at the Institute, you know, I like to make buddies wherever I go. And so one of the church ladies and I Mm -hmm. were connected over the years, I built a lot of trust. And, you know, even though she was like, well, I don't really understand, but I support you and I care about you and, you know, let me know what I can do. And so I confided in her that I was like, I am really struggling. I'm going to talk to the bishop. You know, I sinned and I don't know if I want to repent and go through that process and stay in the church. And she like had to take, you know, a minute to think about that. And she's like, do you want me to go with you, you know, uh, and sit outside, you know, in support or, you know, just even having her know that uh, information was really comforting because I couldn't tell my parents. I couldn't Mm -hmm. tell my sibling. I couldn't tell any of my family members that I was going through, you know, all these challenges. And so everything was very secretive. Even Mm -hmm. going to the queer center, I had to wait till my parents were either at work or they were in bed. And then I would sneak out to go to the Q center. I I didn't tell my parents for like three years after that I was like going to like queer clubs and, you know, attending these like youth groups. I would just say I'm like going to study session and whatnot. And I, you know, couldn't share about the friends. Right. A bishop and I'm like, all right, well, I acted on it. I'm, I'm as gay as gay could be. Um, yeah, now what? Exactly. And that's what I, I was like, what happens next? He's like, well, I guess it depends on like, do you want to repent? And I was like, I, I don't think I do. And, you know, he laid it out. of like, like you yes. get, don't exactly. Run. Get out of there. Run. Shaking myself. Um mm. And he laid it out of like, well, we have to move to like a disciplinary action. I was like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean, yeah. Exactly. I was so afraid. And the only time I think I've heard of disciplinary action and um, excommunication, one of my deaf friends had shared that his dad was excommunicated. And back in like the I think 90s or maybe in like 2000s, they would actively announce when a church member was excommunicated from the church in sacrament meeting. It was like the business part of sacrament meeting of actively shaming people. They're like, this person. Public humiliation. Yes. Exactly. Like, don't leave the fold or you're going to be like a loser like this person. Like, oh, great. That's awesome. Wow. Wow. Personal business aired. And excommunication is wild because it is on par with murder, child abuse, adultery, and what other deviant you know sex and uh, like deviant sex in the sense of like 
anal or like any exactly wow. like how is that grouped how is that in on the same level like, precisely like how is that grouped in with murder and sexual abuse of children like what the actual fuck problematic as yes, yes super problematic also i probably should have asked you if i could use Cuss that all word. the time <laughs> fuck fuck you can use fuck all you want here it's um, safe <laughs> maybe i should have asked at the beginning no there's no rules the there's no time. rules <laughs> okay. um <clears throat> So he's laying it out. He's like, you could uh, go through the repentance pro- process. You and I would have continuous meetings over months together of recounting your sin and how sad you feel. It's not disgusting. But you don't feel sad. Like, That's the whole thing, right? Like how hey, joy. You... That yeah. orgasm, though. Um, second thing <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> was uh, you could go through repentance. Also, you couldn't, um, you couldn't pray. You couldn't give any kind of uh testimonies you couldn't give uh you couldn't participate at all you were a body in the room and everyone could see that you were there but not actively participating so also being outed and like publicly shamed right again yes, someone would know something's wrong with you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The third option was like disfellowship uh which meant you were kept on the books uh you know the the books your name is counted uh as a member you can't go into the temple you don't have a temple recommended and basically you're counted as a number but like all of your blessings were like revoked as if you were like not even present like all the things you contributed to the church or tithing the countless hours of service that as youth adults we are supposed to do and completely erased like you, wow. you don't matter all that matters is that they get to count you as a number and all your good work and all of your community and the ways that you've showed up just out the window. And that was like absolutely like such a mind boggling like slap in the face. So like all the yeah. service and care and kindness and ways that I've, you know, been in community with these folks, like doesn't matter. Does uh. not matter. All that matters is my money and I would still have to pay tithing if I were disfellowshipped. <laughs> of I course could- you do. Of course, right? right? Like wow. It's a business. You need that. Mm-hmm. So would you still go to heaven at that point for eternity? Or No. I, wow, I think, so yeah, this like, is really big. Exactly. I think it's like absolved. And then excommunication means like you're unbaptized. Like all those, like same as the disfellowship. You could, it's like you weren't even a member. So you walk in the room and like you would have to take all of the lessons from the missionaries over again. You have to go through missionary lessons, coaching with the bishop. You would even have to go through still like the disciplinary action of like, were you really sorry for your sin? Like, are you going to do better this time? And then you'd have to get rebaptized as an adult and go through everything like all over again. I was like, oh my God. And I was like, well, let me think this one over. Yeah. I was absolutely frightened. Like, I, I can't, I can't be here. I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And like, I consulted you know, uh, my friend from the Institute of Religion, and she's like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I have no clue. And, mm. you know, um, also the church will send you disciplinary action of like, here's a formal letter that you're going through disciplinary action. Um, and these are the people that are going to be in the meeting. Of course, it was like the bishop, first, second, third counselor, and the male secretary. So I had four men that were in my disciplinary action, and White I was treatment. alone. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And they're like 50s. Wow. 50 plus wow um and i had to get the letters sent to my institute friend because i couldn't let my parents know that i was going through disciplinary action so i had to ask my bishop to send the mail to this person's home so that i could have this facade of me still going to church until i left for 
college, like uh, my four year. My God, how are you feeling at all this time? I can't even imagine. I was constantly breaking down. I was having to like leave class, go to the bathroom and cry. It was just like in my body. I was so shaky and jumpy and just like all these trauma responses. Um, yeah, my grades were really suffering. It was very upsetting. And um, I know there was like one Mormon girl in my class and uh we were talking about like religion and she just was like holding in such high esteem and she was going also going to a singles ward and you know just on this different track and i'm like you just do not get it no do not get it no not life so i started going through the disciplinary action and my friend would you know wait out in the just you know sit and wait for me and it was just as bad as i thought it would be there's like three men on the side of my bishop's desk. I'm sitting in a chair and then there's a man taking notes and the door is closed and they ask me to recount my sin. They want to hear the details of the sex I had. Yeah. How specific were they at? Like, cause this seems yeah predatory and uncomfortable for me hearing this. Yeah. Similar to the temple interviews, they were asking about, okay, what, what sex did you have? Right. Because I think they also want to know, like, well, was it, you know, the unholy way of having sex? Was it anal? You know, what were implements being used? Like, the ways in which they're asking these invasive questions. I I was also, like, in a fawn state. I was just, of like, course. Yep. so freaked out. I was shaking. I've never had sex before. And then now I, you know, I'm going through this process mm. and just deep shame, anxiety, and also trying to hold my ground and advocate for myself. So it's just like grappling with all these emotions and like these learned responses of like, you don't talk back to your bishop. You answer questions as truthfully as you can. Mm. It it was just so wild to have all of this, you know, perceived, you know, power in the room, the patriarchy, like staring down and me being an active participant. I need to leave the church. I'm grappling with, I don't want to lose my connection to my family for eternity. I'm told, you know, I'm going to live a really sad life, choosing life to be a lesbian and also leaving the church, which has all these perks and community built in Mm -hmm. and that all these terrible things would happen upon leaving the church. So all this fear mongering going through my head. Striking you with that fear. Exactly. So fucked up. And um, I was like, I'm not sorry for having sex. I had sex with a woman. Um, I'm not going to go into the details. And I was very clear about that. I'm like. I'm not going to share that with you. I don't know where that leads us. And they're like, well, we want to, you know, be sure that you're, you know, uh, not going to go and tell people, you know, talk badly about the church, that you're going to hold the church in, you know, high esteem. And like, we just want to reiterate, like, all the ways that you'd be losing all these privileges and like highlighting, you know, all the covenants I made to God and to the church and my standing in the community and that I would basically be like left with nothing and that like do you really want that life of like the protections because like when you actively tithe when you go to the temple you know I hadn't uh gotten this the blessing or gone on mission where I would get the garments right like the special underwear which is basically fireproof so like if the second coming happens and you're good standing with the lord you're paying your tithing, you're wearing your garments, you will literally be protected and you won't go up in flames. Or like if you were to get in a car accident and you're wearing your garments, you won't be harmed. And, you know, like they were saying, you know, like if you're losing all those like safety precautions. And like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, is this a life jacket? Like what? Yeah. Oh gosh, it's so wild the way that they were, you know, just using fear. 
I, I mean, I don't want to label this, but like, as I'm hearing this, it's, it's just screaming emotional abuse. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Right. Fear. Point. If yep. you don't do this, like you're going to have nothing. Cause mm-hmm. I think if anyone else heard this without that context of the religious frame, you're going to have nothing. You might die and, and have no life afterwards and you're going to be completely alone. Like if any sort of partner or someone was saying that to you, we would call that emotional abuse. True. That is very true. Very stupid observation. When you say it like that. Yeah. Dang. It's like, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. <Bullshit. laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I know, like, yeah, the context of that is very heavy, but I, I think it's it's something to discuss. Absolutely. I went through that for four months. Oh, was, my God, my heart. It was gnarly. It was so gnarly. Um, mm. And, I mean, it would be basically, I think they were hoping that I'd change my mind, and they were trying to wear me down, right? Yes. So they kept asking the same question. Yep, emotional abuse. Yep. They're wearing me down, hoping my, you know, no would turn into a yes or maybe or, you know, sow some kind of doubt yeah, in my confidence. And I just kept saying the same things. I'm not going to talk about the sex act that I had with this person. I don't want to repent. I also don't want to be in this church, but I don't see another way out. I'm, And I was pretty adamant of like they kept bringing up all these hypotheticals. Like if a gay person were to come to you and ask you about your, you know, experience in the church like what will you say you know if you were to leave the church you know how are you going to paint the church <laughs> i'd love to hold this face for you to paint the church right now this is just, <laughs> yes i said i'd be honest you know mm. uh you can't be your authentic self right you could potentially go through a disciplinary action you might you know uh have some fear instilled in you you know, and of course they're shifting in their seats. I'm shifting my seats because I'm getting really hot and angry with this line of questioning and just realizing how much their image matters as opposed to here's this queer person that's suffering by being manipulated into staying into this oppressive community environment and trajectory in my life. And here they are not giving a shit and about the, the discomfort that, you know, they literally showed up and showed out, right? Four people, all white men and here's this you know visibly queer trans person trying to intimidate and i was very honest mm. i would say i would give them the resources so they can make an informed decision on why they should leave the fucking church yep i would definitely caution them against staying and like the repercussions and that huge trade-off of like do you want to live an authentic life or do you want to live life where you're oppressed and told that you're never going to be good enough and you know you can wait till the afterlife and like who knows what's going to happen then but like hey if you're celibate and you're a good person like you never know god might throw you a bone and maybe you'll still have a straight partner but they'll be accepting that you're gay <laughs> like what yeah that's something to look forward to an no. eternity of like that yuck Mm-mm. no it was just, yeah, it was a very frightening experience. Finally, the last meeting, I think it was like the fourth or fifth month of going through that, they um, sat down with me and they're like, well, after, you know, hearing your sin, going through, you know, our options, talking with higher ups, you know, the decision is excommunication. And so I was excommunicated from the Mormon church. Um, it was very grounding in that moment. I was both you know, happy to be done with the church, but also I felt this immense grief and sadness and shame and anxiety of like, I don't know if I could ever tell my parents this, how will I keep this facade going until I'm able to leave my home Mm. and go to college? 
you know, what would my, my grandma say? You know, I still had a, a grandma that was living and, you know, very much a part of the church and had established the church in my hometown and just really worried about, you know, fucking things up. Yeah. Um, and I just, I had a really, really hard time. It was one of the roughest transitions I think I've had ever of going from like being a part of the community to like still maintaining contact with the deaf community and being able to connect outside of church. But it was overnight. I did not have a community, the community that I've had and could count on since I was a baby, right? Like church members would show up on my almost deathbed as a baby, right? They would bring, you know, food to my parents, mm -hmm. childcare. You could always count on community. And then that was gone mm. with this decision. And I know I had played a part of it of like, I know I want out. Of course, I don't want to be completely excommunicated from the community, but I know I don't want to be a part of the church. And that was, it was very hard to like grapple with. And I didn't have anyone reach out to me um, other than like the Institute person and like the deaf community and no one else. I kid you not, like no one contacted me. So you were alone that. in all of that. All of that distress. Yep. I was very much alone in that, that grief. And I think one of the scariest things, and I started to think that I made one of the biggest mistakes in my life. My, it was not even five days later that my dad was hit while biking and sustained a traumatic brain injury. And I thought that was God smiting me for my, I mean, how close of a correlation is that I get excommunicated five days later. My dad is incapacitated with a traumatic brain injury, broken neck. Whoa. I think that makes a fuck ton of sense, right? Because you were the baby that was born to save them. Now you're leaving. Now here's the consequence for your sin. I think that makes a lot of sense given the dynamic and the paradigm that you're in. Yeah. It was awful. Which I horrible. I was so, I was like, this was me. This. Yep. Good oh. job, Clark. Way to oh. fuck it up. I was torn. I was wrecked. I was I'm so sure. fucking wrecked. Oh my God. I couldn't tell my mom because no one knew that I got excommunicated and I had to sit with that like, sorry, dad. Sorry, I got you uh, ran over by a fucking Toyota truck. Great. Ugh. And you were alone. I just can't even imagine. I mean, you know, I'm sure you know as a fellow, fellow clinician, like community is one of the biggest things to help us, I don't even know, survive these th sorts of things. So I just can't even imagine having to deal with this all on your own. It was it was horrible. Yeah, I was definitely messed up. I was mm -hmm. super messed up for a long time. Thankfully, my dad is, you know, stable now. He medically retired um, after his accident like a year or two. I think it was a year after his retirement. Yeah, he had to medically retire. But yeah, that was like really hard to grapple mm -hmm. with. And I told yeah. my, I ended up telling my parents a few years ago. I think it was like two or three years ago that I was excommunicated and that was, you know, not easy for them to hear. Two or three years ago. So in, in between that time, they thought maybe you just left the church. Mm -hmm. That oh. I went inactive. I told them, I'm like, I stopped going to church because my dad was like, you could transfer to the Institute in Portland and like showed me where the church building was and had me meet the missionaries. And at this time I'd already been out of the church, right? Excommunicated. Right. And so, um, you know, just not saying I was inactive and I didn't want to go and like yeah. didn't still be in that pressure. Wow. Yeah, it was really, really hard. Oh. But yeah, that was me leaving the church and wow. I can definitely see my life is like 
so much better. Mm. <laughs> Even though I'm living with that pain, like it definitely helps me understand uh, my clients that have gone through religious trauma, just how horrible it can be to like suffer in silence and to be coerced into these mm -hmm. uh, religions and to stay and all the fear mongering and just feeling so alone and mm. confused and having literal eternal, you know, uh, impacts from your, you know, said decisions, like that just weighs and has some, it breeds shame. I hear how, how it impacts people's sex life, the way that they can receive touch, ask for touch, it comes into consent. I just see it permeates all parts of folks' lives, the shame that is embedded in us from these religions and patriarchy. Yes, a hundred percent. And not just any decision, but a decision that was your authentic desire for another human being, something that is a part of your body, part of your natural desire, is being told to you that you're excommunicated from the whole church because of this, losing all of your salvation from just this one expression, right, that is so natural to you. And then how does that, you know, I mean, as a, a figure, as a fellow al allosexual, right, that is a huge part of our connection and relationships in our human experience. And so how does that shape you having such a negative, shameful experience for something that felt natural to you and it is a part of the human experience? How do you come out of that and be okay? Exactly. And that it was held on par with murder yes. and sexual abuse. And that's... What is that? Yeah, and that's your natural desire and attraction in this world how do you grapple with that when you get out so much shame i'm actively uh, like actively working on it you know God, every day yes. and I, I, <sighs> I know that it impacts my relationships the way that i show up with partners you know the ways that i can advocate or not advocate for myself during sexual experiences mm -hmm. i see it with clients and you know i'm starting to do uh somatic body work uh with a therapist and i'm in therapy it's been really hard. I think a lot of my like work and learning has also come from obviously going through educational programs, sure. like my yeah. master's program, yep. being introduced to kink, uh, kink community, polyamory. That Hell has been yeah. life changing. I identify as polyamorous and kinky. It's just been freeing and to feel accepted and loved and just having that new community. And I think that's been the biggest thing that I feel is missing from my life after, you know, coming to an end with the Mormon church and like that part of my life is like getting into a new community mm -hmm. and folks that aren't just going to abandon me because I'm gay yep. and shame me for, for my want to be in my body, to love my body, to show exactly. my, my body off. I'm, I feel confident and like I've had top surgery and I feel yeah. good about myself and like folks are not going to actively shame my body um, or the kinks that I'm, I'm into mm -hmm. or because I have multiple partners, which also I shared with my parents and I thought they'd be cool with it. Right. I was like, I'm polyamorous because my family, it's really sad, but polygamy, uh, they're, one of my ancestors had nine wives and I was like, my parents are totally going to be like chill. And they were not. And I was like, uh, okay, okay. So Mormons are all about polygamy, my ancestors. And now you're shaming me for now being... you're just hypocritical. <laughs> exactly. What the hell? I was Does like, anyone oh, see this? Bag. Does anyone see this? <laughs> <laughs> it's a no. Okay. Uh, yeah, yes. I, I think uh, also finding resources like Wild and Sublime has been like life changing, like. Karen Yates, yeah, like shout yes, out. Yes, she was on the podcast. 
love parents. Yeah. It's been radical um, to learn about healers in the community doing mm-hmm. the work, like uh, sexological body work, uh, coaching. I think that is radical and like that is Lord's work. I don't mm-hmm. see the Mormon church is doing the actual Lord's work. They can go fuck themselves. But I see people like Karen Yates, you know, Cassie Porter, sexological body workers, sex workers are doing the Lord's work, yeah. you know, getting us comfortable with being in our bodies, asking mm-hmm. for touch. Also, like, one-way touch has been something that has been completely healing, like, asking a partner, you know, for touch and also not having that expectation of it given back, right? Yep. I think being able to feel empowered and okay mm-hmm. with not having to give and just being able to receive has just absolutely changed, like, the way that I move in the world. Yes, yes. Yes, that right to pleasure, right? Yeah, that, that is a divine right. You have a divine right to mm-hmm. pleasure. Uh, yeah, I feel like you hit on one of those really big things where, at least from my research when I was looking into spiritual trauma, one of the biggest things that was a factor for healing afterwards was finding a community. Mm-hmm. And so that then, yeah, when you have these intersecting identities here to find a community that can accept you for all of that and provide understanding and safety and love, that is that is healing. That is healing, right? I mean, these these horrible things happen to us and it's impossible to ignore the fact that we're changed from them. But I think the biggest thing is that we're not defined by them nor stuck in that place. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really brought me to like, okay, what is important to me? My values. Mm. Same with, you know, the pandemic where everyone is kind of like getting jolted awake of like, what is actually important to me? Where is my energy going out? How am I receiving energy? Yes. Trying new things, feeling empowered to make decisions. And I feel like that's what really got me out of my rut of like I know that I want community I want chosen family over bio family I want to be able to wear what I want I want to make informed decisions about my body my care how I show up um and I feel like getting into the kink and polyamorous community has just been absolutely life-changing to Mm -hmm. feel empowered to see other people empowered and owning their confidence to be able to wear and express kinks and not having those shame I just feel like shame is so ingrained in me and the way that I move about the world and having, you know, the the opportunity to unlearn that in a safe, yes. safer environment, not always safe, but safer, like going to, you know, clubs and dungeons and being in community with other queer people and being part of polycules. Yeah. It's just been absolutely like that community care has been really it's different, really rad. Yeah, it's very different. It's different. And you notice, I mean, like personally, as someone who's in those spaces as well, I notice that difference in the level of acceptance and love and sp- ability to hold space for the diversity of the human experience and so many different factors. And so it is so healing. And I mean, it's called that church, right? Like yeah, exactly. kink and all these things. Like it is healing. Mm-hmm. That is our church. And exactly. thank God for that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh. oh my gosh. I oh yeah, I, I literally whisper that. I'm like, this is this is where where I feel God. If God yes. were a person or the goddess, this is absolutely where I feel I feel closest to God. A hundred percent. I am with you in that, right? I am so, so with you. And I just I appreciate you sharing your story so much. So there's so much, uh, yes, this journey of coming into your yes, right? You started with that and this, and now you've hit this place where you feel that and you feel celebrated in that and safe to express that and found your chosen family. And I'm so, so happy for that. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Mm. (sighs) I know, I know. 
There is one question I do ask everyone on the podcast as a closing question. Oh. Ooh, yeah. The one question is, what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Mm. Knowing that it's okay that if you don't know what you want and giving yourself the opportunity to explore, to get curious, to be a lifelong learner and not having to know all the things. It is okay to be a newbie, a novice, to step out, to ask mentors, to ask trusted people and be okay with being vulnerable. I think we're so afraid of making mistakes in the way in any part of our lives. And it's just like, give yourself that permission. I'm going to take this opportunity and be brave. Mm-hmm. I might not like it and that's okay. I'm going to try. Dare I say that's living? Right. Living <laughs> yeah. is right. Like living no. is when we are beginners to new things. When you're doing mm. the same thing over and over again, that's just a repetition, a routine. I, I feel like living comes in being brave, trying new things, trying mm. an art that I'm horrible at. That's the process of being a beginner and continuing to live is to go through that change. Absolutely. Only yeah. constant life is change, right? Yep. There's my Buddhism. Yep. There it is. Yeah. A hundred percent. Because if you're stagnant, you know, stagnant water, death, so yep. many things, nothing, life is not stagnant. And so I, I, I love that you say that. And I think it's so important when we talk about change to also talk about the piece of feeling uncomfortable in it. It's never, yes. at least in my opinion, I don't know about anyone else, but it always feels like I'm stepping over one of those like platforms that may or may not have a hole that's going to just <laughs> fall completely <laughs> under you. You're like, I'm going to try this. Oh, that didn't feel good. I fell straight down. We're going to mm. get up and stand somewhere else, right? Yep. It's a little bit of that unknown, but at the same time, there's no other way to live live fully in my mm. opinion yep. yeah it's brave it's brave and courageous to make a change and to step out of the norm and it's super scary because like you said there might be a pitfall you might fall but also you can get back up yep try something new yeah and that's why i want to just shout out and take a moment to pause the bravery of your actions to leave the church at a time when you were alone it's extremely brave thank you yeah yeah thank you you're a light to a lot of people i promise very kind yeah 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 very happy to be out of the church happy to be in community with other folks that understand see my vulnerability and i feel very held and cared for good good as you deserve to be thank you yeah well, that's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. Yeah, it was so lovely to get to hear your story. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the Anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.